Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 215 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the semi-prime episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that a semi-prime, also called bi-prime, or two almost prime, or PQ number is a natural number that is the product of two not necessarily distinct prime numbers. And of course, this week's semi-prime happens to be 215. And of course, as always, with your little bit of mathematical knowledge, I am Matt. And coming to us all the way from, well, it might be sunny California this week, would be our resident Sony employee... Tim! Actually, it's sunny today, but for the rest of the week, not looking so good. So, uh, happy late belated anniversary to you and your wife. Thank you. Did you do anything fun for your anniversary? I know we kind of touched on it. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a marker this anniversary is, isn't it? Like third 35th no. anniversary or something like that? Yeah. Uh, 13 years married, 16 years together. So... Wow. That's what's up. That is a feat, though. I mean, you really don't hear about that too often, especially yeah. from a young chap mm-hmm. like yourself. And and if we make it four more years, our marriage is more likely to end in death than divorce. Oh. There's a little random factoid for you. Well, why is that? Why, I mean, why death to divorce? Well, I, mean, when, I think I would take the divorce over death, to be honest. That's just, if you're married longer than 17 years, that's what they say, that your marriage is more likely to end in death than divorce. I guess people have either resigned themselves to their fate, or they've learned to work together to the point that they don't want anything else, or they've just gotten to that point where they're so comfortable, it's not worth the hassle. So... You just end up sticking it out till you're dead. Well, since we are now on that topic of death, how would you like to see yourself go if it was going to be something premature? I don't know. I've always said that I would like to die at the age of 92 shot by a jealous husband. That's, But I don't know how premature that is. Shot by a jealous husband. Aren't you that jealous husband? I, that's why I'm, you know, I don't know. That, that's the, that's the thing. It, it, it's, it's, what, it's damn near 60 years in the future. So, that's who true. knows what's happened by that point. So, true. I see myself falling into a volcano. And not that's like true. Joe versus the volcano. It's nothing like that. But I mean, like, oh, hey, I'm taking the kids to Hawaii, to the big island, and we're going to go watch the volcanic liquid hot lava spew from its core. And then as I'm trying to take a, one of those cool, like, crazy dad pictures, I, you know, the, the, the surface I'm standing on falls off and I, you know, just die right there in front of my family. I see that happening in the formidable future. Wow. That is, that is certainly oddly specific. It is. Yeah. I, I had an epiphany, Matthew. Do you ever have an epiphany? Um, yes, I have had an epiphany. And in the immortal words of Hook... From the movie Hook, well, that must hurt. 
To so, which, to which Smee replies, lightning has just struck my brain. But let me ask you a question okay. as we cruise into the news of the weird. Now, everybody is familiar with the DMV, or as we call it here in Texas, the DPS. And Why the DPS? I don't know, because they don't know how to fucking call anything normal. It's Texas. We do things differently. You know this. It's not the Department of Motor Vehicles. It's the Department of Public Safety. I have no idea. Um, so at any rate, though, um, it, I mean... Everybody understands their, you know, has the frustration of having had to have dealt with the DMV at one point or another. But how, how much trouble do you think you would go through to pay a fine at the DMV? Like, if you could really stick it to them, how much trouble would you go through? How much would you be willing to spend, in addition to any fine, if you could come up with a creative way to stick it to the DMV for being the DMV? Uh, ooh. Um, is there an amount? Is it just, you know, I, it's just, you know, no, I don't care that much. Or, you know, do you think you would be willing to spend money and plan? I, you know, I really don't care too much because out here we can do all of our, cra- take care of our crap online and you can reserve a spot to, uh, to, to meet your DMV person. So, I mean, which, which you can do here too as well. So that's, I mean, yeah, but apparently. Oh, yeah, um, apparently not in Virginia oh, because well, they had a coming. man, yeah, <laughs> a man in Lebanon, Virginia, went out of his way. He literally he spent one thousand five dollars in order to pay a fine. Okay, he had uh, he had a three thousand dollar fine basically. Uh, to, to the, to the penny, it was 200, I'm sorry, $2,987.14 to pay in taxes on a car, uh, that he had to pay to the DMV. And he was so pissed off about, uh, the whole shebang that he decided to do, uh, his fine in pennies. Oh, isn't this from like some time ago? Cause that sounds super familiar. It is, it is literally from four days ago. Oh. Well, I guess uh, it's not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, from HuffingtonPost.com, by way of Elise Onechell, a uh, man paid DMV with 298,745 pennies in pettiest revenge scheme ever. The DMV has driven one man to do something extraordinary. On December 11th, Nick Stafford pushed five wheelbarrows full of loose coins into Department of Motor Vehicles in Lebanon, Virginia, according to a statement he made on his company's website. Stafford, who has been fighting with DMV for months, decided to pay $2,987.14 in taxes on his car with 2,900, I'm sorry, 298,745 pennies. The faculty's automated coin counting machine couldn't handle the load, and employees were forced to count the 1,548 pounds of change by hand. Stafford said that he arrived at the DMV at 9 a.m. Wednesday, and staff was not done counting the pennies until early Thursday morning, the BBC reports. Um, now, <laughs> I, I gotta be honest with you. This guy, okay, so the guy had a problem trying to figure out um, how to pay the taxes on his car because 
inside the county that he lives, he owned two properties. And he had to figure out which property he needed to to properly attach the car to so that he could pay the correct amount of taxes on his car. And he had this big, huge rigmarole. And because they pissed him off about it so bad, he literally sued them. He hired 11 people uh, at $10 an hour to break open rolled coins. He spent $400 on the wheelbarrows. <laughs> and all in all, he spent $1,005 uh, to end up getting through the, the, the lawsuits in order to, to solve them so that he could do his business with the DMV. And then a bunch of drop of pennies off. So what do you think, Tim? Do you think... That you would ever be that pissed off that you would go out of your way to pay a $3,000 fine by spending an additional $1,000 just to watch people count by pennies? I'm not a douchebag. I, I feel bad for the DMV. <laughs> not, I mean, how do you, how not, does anybody, I don't feel bad for the DMV because while those specific employees may not have done anything that day, I have seen some DMV. They just don't care. In general, they don't give a shit. And they could not tell us about I don't want to waste you. my time. So, you know. Like, I mean, the guy had to wait there until they counted all of his pennies, right? Um, apparently, yes. He hung out for the vast majority of it, I suppose. All right. So this asshole, he had nothing better to do but do this. I kind of think... He deserved the the little bit of smack from the DMV. I mean, who knows? Maybe I don't. I don't know. Like, like the guy just sounds like a, like a c- to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I... why waste your time? Why would you want to spend any more time at the DMV than you need to? I think it was just because he wanted to show the DMV that as they frequently infuriate people with their archaic ways of doing things and well yes the online thing is nice nowadays but uh with with how they infuriate people and hold people up with archaic ways of doing stuff and um just kind of deciding willy-nilly on how things go and being so precise and like oh nope you didn't do this right so now you got to wait again uh and do it right this next time that you know he made them frustrated for a change. I, I truly believe that you're in the minority on this one, Tim. Write to us at the SLS <laughs> cast. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm just I'm just too nice of a guy. I hear you. I hear you. I personally, I know I don't have the stones for that. It's good that he brought those wheelbarrows with him because he's going to need some wheelbarrows to haul the balls out of there. Because, I mean, you know, you got to have a pretty big set to walk into the DMV and go, by the way, have fun counting this change. I just, I just got too much time. I don't, I don't have that time on my hands. <laughs> I hear Maybe you. they're big because that reminds me, all though, he does around is Yeah, around. you don't have the kind of time because you're always watching movies. Did you make your 400 movies, by the way? last year <laughs> no <laughs> really no i you, uh no because you were at like uh, 380 I, or something how did you not you know with with two with more than two weeks left i ended up on like it was like 394 or something wow sounds like you needed to rewatch the rocky series and just call it a day i mean you know but i still say that i'm pretty sure 
It takes a lot of balls to watch every single James Bond. Well, actually, not every single James Bond. What's a really bad series that it would take a lot of balls to watch? I don't know. Porky's series? You know what the funny thing is? I was just about to say that. but <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, man. Well, would you like to uh, see what we've got in the old mail sack, if anything? And speaking of balls, yeah. Okay, well, here we go, folks. Uh, checking the old mail sack, where you too can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, follow us on Twitter at the slscast, where we can, you know, mention that you decided to follow us. We peek inside, and holy shit, there's an email! Yes, an email from Diana. I'm so excited! No idea. It says, uh, subject is kudos. Kudos is the subject line. Uh, and it goes, whoosh! That is the sound of your devoted fan blowing the cobwebs out of your mail sack. <laughs> I've been enjoying the shows through the holidays with silent appreciation. However, while listening today on the old commute, I must agree, you two surmise the celebrities mixing with politics question quite admirably. Without berating either side or beating the dead horse, she spoke succinctly and focused on the positive actions celebrities could do with their influence to promote their political leanings. So add my voice to the kudos. Voices of reason indeed float like cream to the top. I like the idea of Carrie Fisher continuing in the Star Wars sagas as a disembodied voice or specter-like image. I'm sure her bold opinions and fingers are flying in whatever realm she occupies now anyways. Your true blue chili fan in the great white northeast, Diana. And thank you so very much, Diana. You have no idea how excited I was to see that there was email. <laughs> uh, did you have to do like a couple double takes? I I, well, not, I truly not did. I was like, holy crap, is that actually is that is that really it? Um and and it was. I was just so so thank you so very much. You've you definitely made my uh, my show week with that, Diana. Um, and it's actually interesting. We'll have some uh, um, news about Carrie Fisher uh, coming up in our new segment. So it is actually interesting that you did bring that up. And I'm glad that we were uh, able to effectively communicate our feelings about what uh, happened at the Golden Globes. So... Look at that, Tim. Who would have thought that we would not just be able to talk to ourselves with the middle ground and be able to kind of, you know, come to terms with that, but actually get people to, um, to, to not, I mean, agree, disagree, whatever, but to actually even know where we're coming from and understand our point of view. It feels nice. It feels good. I, I'm glad there are other people like us out there. <laughs> They like us. They really, really like us. Yeah, but thank you, Diana. I mean, you don't understand how much crying I, I, I have to experience coming from Matt every single week. <laughs> Indeed, I think. Then, without further ado, we should get to some real news. What do you say? Sounds good. All right, folks. Then here we go. It's the news. <laughs> Hey, 
And first up from me here from Deadline.com by way of Patrick Hypes. Original Ghost in the Shell movie returning to theaters. Yes! With Paramount's live-action version of Ghost in the Shell, starring Scarlett Johansson readying for its late March bow, Lionsgate is getting into the action by teaming with Funimation Films to return the original 1995 anime film to the big screen. The iconic Mamoru Oshii-directed pick that helped introduce the genre to a wide U.S. audience will hit 110 theaters on February 7th and 8th, the company said, with both the original Japanese version with subtitles and the English dub to be offered. In conjunction with the limited run, Lionsgate also is prepping a deluxe Blu-ray and DVD collector's edition of the remastered original beginning March 7th. And in case you did not remember, Paramount's Ghost in the Shell, directed by Rupert Sanders, hits theaters March 31st. Tim, good news or not, what do you say? Yeah, I think so. That, that that was succinct, <laughs> to be sure. I, I honestly, you know, thought that was a little more than that, but uh, apparently not. So, uh, moving forward to StarWars.com. <laughs> and uh, I guess this is just by the whole, uh, the whole Star Wars team there. There's no direct attribution. It says, Woody Harrelson signs on for young Han Solo film. Veteran film and television actor Woody Harrelson is stepping aboard the upcoming Han Solo movie set to arrive in theaters next year. Ah, yes, Harrelson, known for wide-ranging roles in film and TV such as The Hunger Games, No Country for Old Men, True Detective, Cheers, and Zombieland, will join actors Alden Einrich as Han Solo and Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian and Amelia Clark in The Adventure. The Star Wars story is the second in a series of films that live outside the Skywalker family saga and is set during the early scoundrel days of the iconic characters prior to A New Hope. So... What do you think, Tim? Where where do you see Woody Harrelson fitting into a movie like this? Nowhere. Oh, come on. After <laughs> no, I'm after after okay, I I admit um, you know, prior to The Hunger Games, a casting like this would have made me left me scratching my head. But seeing how, the kind of work that he was able to do in The Hunger Games, I don't know. I I have no idea what kind of role he can play, but I do believe he could do it. I just I can't even think of where I have no idea. I don't even know what kind of... I, I will say this. I like Woody Harrelson a lot, and I was kind of kidding in saying it. I, I don't know. I mean, I can see him being like, maybe he is another renegade who trains Han Solo, or maybe he's going to be another mentor or something like that. But Maybe he plays the original Jabba the Hutt before they make him CGI? Just kidding. True, <laughs> maybe. he Maybe he is Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. He is... Woody Harrelson, the hut. Uh, I could have done better than that, maybe, but <laughs> he is doing actually a live movie sometime this month. Did you see uh, in the trailers for this at the movie theater? It's like a big Fathom Events thing where he's doing a two hour, like an hour and a half to two hour long movie live, and it's with Woody Harrelson and Owen Wilson, and it's basically I think it's called like Lost in London. Woody Harrelson's Lost in London, and it's based on when 
Woody Harrelson got arrested in London some years ago because I guess he was too drunk and high or something like that. So he is doing a two-hour-long movie, hour-and-a-half, two-hour-long movie, based on his experiences experiences of getting high, getting drunk, and then getting arrested in London. I guess, wouldn't that just be a stage play if it's live? I don't... Well, he's actually going to be, like, it's going to be on the streets, and they're going to be on locations, and he's going to, I guess, a jail, I would assume, or, I I don't know, like, it's supposed to be, like, a whole interactive type of thing. Well, okay, well, that sounds interesting, I guess we'll have to check it out. Um, All right. well, what do you got for us there, sir? Okay, doke. First up from thehollywoodreporter.com, drive subject of a viral lawsuit still being litigated five years later. Yes, this is written by Eric Gardner, and it says this. Maybe it was the comical premise, but when a Michigan resident filed a lawsuit in 2011 over the Ryan Gosling star Drive, practically every news outlet wrote about it. The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, Guardian, Time Magazine, and other publications were fascinated by a woman's allegation that the trailer was misleading. Drive wasn't a chase film a la The Fast and the Furious, and her gripe that the movie supposedly promoted criminal violence against members of the Jewish faith. As far as what we can tell, no one wrote about what happened next. But surprise, the controversy is still raging in court, with defendants on Friday demanding a judge stop on the brakes. From the time of the initial filing, the plaintiff's lawyer, Martin H. Leaf, hasn't experienced much success on the claim that the film has violated the Michigan Consumer Protection Act. A judge in Oakland, Michigan, rejected plaintiff Sarah Demings' putative class action in March 2012, concluding that there was no misinterpretations of material fact, even assuming the trailer contained subliminal anti-Semitism. Therefore, the plaintiff tried to get the judge removed from the case for allegedly being anti-Semitic himself, and the dispute went to a Michigan appeals court, which on October 15, 2013, handed down a decision that stated in part, quote, Any affirmative representations the trailer made about being a racing movie were not accurate. The movie does not contain driving scenes. Moreover, plaintiff... Contrary to her hyperbole, does not refer us to any actual violence against or even criticism of Jews that has resulted from the film being shown. And yet, that was not the end of this. After further attempts for reconsideration and a petition to the Michigan Supreme Court, Leaf, this past June, filed a new lawsuit in federal court. He's now representing himself, and the list of defendants has grown thanks to an alleged conspiracy. Among them, Drive director Nicholas Reffin, actor Albert Brooks, Sony Pictures, Netflix, Amazon.com, Apple, Google, and AMC. Faced with a litigation that won't give up over the allegation that Drive contains anti-Semitic messages and stereotypes, the defendants recount the history of this infamous dispute and ask for dismissal based on res judicata, which is a matter already adjudicated, a failure to state a claim, and the First Amendment. Via The Hollywood Reporter, you can check out the full brief in support of this dismissal. So, Matt, uh, what do you think about this? Um, I, I know you were not uh, a Jew. I think you've seen Drive. 
If so, were you offended in any way that this movie, that what was not a crazy, in-your-face, all-out, shitty studio action movie like The Fast and the Furious? Or even, were you offended by its anti-Semitic messages? Isn't Albert Brooks Jewish? Hey, if, if he's not, it would surprise me, I guess. I legitimately, I thought Albert Brooks was Jewish. Quite possibly. So, I mean, I would think that... Hang on, I'm going to let's get here. Albert... Brooks Jewish? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yes, Albert Brooks is Jewish. His grandparents emigrated from Austria and Russia. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna say that as someone who is <clears throat> probably much more in tune with things that could be potentially deemed anti-Semitic, Albert Brooks would probably not have been in a movie like that. I would think if it was like legitimately so, instead of the things that are portrayed in the movie as a character. Um. But I did just while you were while you were uh rehashing the story there, I did go back and just rewatch the trailer because I thought the movie was good personally. Um, but I can kind of see how while it does come off as a thriller, which it is, it is a thriller. Um, I can see how someone would be confused by the fact that there are action elements to it. Um, I just think that um. I don't think this was a bait and switch trailer. I just think that you have to kind of look through the, um, you kind of have to look through the veneer of the action to understand that the action is just the impetus that gives you the thriller, which is the movie. So I, I gotta be honest. I don't think these people have a leg to stand on here. So, you know, you know what kind of person who would be offended or pissed off about this movie? Mm, Do you know which kind of person a that would stupid be? person? The type of person that would go to the local DMV and pay in pennies. That's the, that's the cunt asshole who would do that. Man, I wish I hadn't closed out that, uh, tab. I, I would have made sure to go through and check to see if his name cross-referenced into that article somehow. Oh, that'd be hilarious. Even, even just like the first name would make me so happy. <laughs> but, oh well. Uh, again, that was, if you want to check out that article and read more about it, that is via thehollywoodreporter.com. Drive, subject of a viral lawsuit still being litigated five years later, written by Eric Gardner. Awesome, awesome. So, from telegraph.co.uk, by way of Luena Waters, Avengers Infinity War will be filmed in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Yes, the third movie in the Marvel Avengers series, Avengers Infinity War, will be filmed in Edinburgh, Glasgow, and the Highlands. Filming for the 400 million pound superhero comic book blockbuster will start on February 28th. By the way, this article is from the 8th of January, and is expected to last for six months boosting Scotland's economy by 10 million pounds. A Disney and Marvel collaboration, the, mus- the movie will feature a star-studded cast, with Hollywood superstars such as Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Downey Jr., and Scarlett Johansson all taking lead roles. Benedict Cumberbatch will return to the movie as Doctor Strange, who he played in the 2016 movie of the same name, Liv Tyler of Lord of the Rings fame, is rumored to be, uh, is rumored to be returning as Betty Ross, who she hasn't played since The Incredible Hulk, and Inverness-born Karen Gillian is thought to be preparing to star as supervillain Nebula. Um, so clearly this is, uh, a lot of this has to do with, um, economics and stuff like that in terms of good tax breaks and things of that nature. But what do you think about the idea, Tim? Should locations, 
be looked at merely in terms of tax breaks or should other features and things be taken into consideration? Because, for example, like in Scotland, certainly the Highlands are beautiful. I mean, take the Highlander, for instance, right? Or as people who uh, also like to do Skyfall and they like to go and recreate the picture uh, where... Uh, Bond and M are driving back to his, you know, back back to the actual Skyfall estate, and they they do they park in that same uh, valley and everything, and then take the same picture from the shot. Um, so it's clear that Scotland is beautiful, has a huge heritage, and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to a movie like Avengers: Infinity War, you know that's basically soundstage stuff because the vast majority of that is going to be CG, it's going to be green screen and all that kind of stuff, and you can pretty much do that kind of stuff anywhere. So while it's good to boost economies, absolutely, I, I, I you know, we wouldn't want to, I don't want to begrudge anybody anything. Is it, should the studios just be focusing solely on tax breaks when they're filming? Or should they weigh in the options of local economies, economies of scale, the locations themselves? What do you think? Does it matter? Yeah, I think it does matter. Uh, unless, I mean, you limit yourself. Any movie that you're shooting where you have to recreate a different location, like if you're shooting in Scotland, even if you're shooting in Canada and you have to recreate a U.S. city, a U.S. city block, a, you know, you know, uh, an American neighborhood or something like that, you're limiting yourself in scope. And, and I know some people can pull it off. We've seen many movies that were made in a Hollywood backlot uh, that take place in New York City or they're in London or, you know, something like that. But I guess it also depends on where where the core of the movie exactly takes place. Because they are shooting over there, and if a lot of it takes place in the U.S. or in other parts of the country, we can expect again to see a lot of CGI, uh, just a lot of CGI stuff. And I guess that is fine, especially when you're looking at a Marvel Avengers movie, because when it comes to scope of these movies, there's more stuff just moving around in, on screen. Like, these movies are not designed for the viewer to take in the scenery, to take in the locations, to take in visually what you're watching. That doesn't necessarily apply to Marvel movies like, uh, like Doctor Strange. Like, they do a better job with it, even though it is clearly blue screen, green screen that they're using. So I, I think it just, I, like all these other movies, we can just expect there to be a whole lot of blue screen, a whole lot of generic cityscapes. And that, that's kind of just how I feel, just a lot of generic stuff. I mean, personally, I would like to see more things shot in L.A. or more things shot in the area where the scene is actually taking place. But, you know, I, I guess that's kind of like how, again, with studio movies from back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, you know, that's always just been the case. It's just now depending on where you're at, it's cheaper to take these big budget movies to the UK, to Scotland and all that. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I get it. Yeah. I mean, sure. I, I think that, uh, I can glean what you mean. I'm a poet and I didn't know it. Anyways. All right. Well, cool. Um, so, uh, that is my news, sir. Bring us home on the news. Sure. Um, I'm just going to mention one piece of news that ties into what Matt was just talking about. But real quick, I just want to mention two others. Um, 
uh, there's another big anime movie coming right out of Asia called Your Name. And apparently, according to Kotaku.com, this movie, Your Name, is the highest grossing anime worldwide. And apparently, according to the writer here, Brian Ashcraft, and it deserves to be the highest grossing anime movie worldwide. And it says this real quick, as comicbook.com points out, Your Name is now the highest grossing anime film ever, earning U.S. $281 million worldwide and surpassing Spirit Away's $270 million gross. Your Name has been a smash hit in Japan, but as ANN adds, it's also done spectacular business in China and South Korea, helping to propel the movie past the Studio Ghibli classic. The film... Opened last August in Japan, and I tried to see it with my oldest son at the theaters, but they were sold out each time we went. I never got around to seeing the movie. I had pretty much forgotten about it until I caught it on a flight to the U.S. from Japan. In a way, it was a shame to see it on a plane, because that's hardly an ideal viewing environment. But I'm glad I finally saw it, because, damn, it's incredible. If you want to read more about this film, your name, and the writer's impressions of the film, do check out this Kotaku.com article. Your name is the highest grossing anime worldwide, and it deserves to be. I'm looking forward to it. I'm just skimming through some of the stills here that this website provides. And it looks very beautiful, like stunning, vivid colors. It just looks fascinating. Also, next up... Collider.com, Star Wars, Lucasfilm has no plans to digitally recreate Carrie Fisher as Leia. This is written by Haley Fouch, and it says this, Lucasfilm has mercifully shot down rumors that the studio is planning to digitally resurrect Carrie Fisher in the wake of the inimitable actress's untimely death. Fisher passed away at the age of 60 last month after suffering a heart attack, which has put the folks at Lucasfilm in a bit of a predicament. While Fisher had wrapped filming on Episode 8, General Leia was reportedly planned to play a major role in the final film of the new trilogy. Rumors recently emerged that Disney and Lucasfilm were negotiating with Fisher's estate for the rights to her digital image, and speculation followed that they would take the Grand Moff Tarkin route and render Leia's performance digitally. Thankfully, the studio seems adamant that they will not pursue that obviously terrible idea. Here's the full statement via the official Star Wars website where they say this, quote, We don't normally respond to fan or press speculation, but there is rumor circulating that we would like to address. We want to assure our fans that Lucasfilm has no plans to digitally recreate Carrie Fisher's performance as Princess or General Leia Organa. Carrie Fisher was, is, and always will be a part of the Lucasfilm family. She was our princess, our general, and more importantly, our friend. We are still hurting from her loss. We cherish her memory and legacy as Princess Leia, and will always strive to honor everything she gave to Star Wars. And all quotes there. Again, that was... Star Wars, Lucasfilm has no plans to digitally recreate Carrie Fisher as Leia via Collider.com, as well as a bit from the official Star Wars website. Uh, first off, I'm glad to hear about this. Um, like what we talked about last week, it would it would have been an awful idea to bring Carrie Fisher back as CGI Leia. And then lastly, to piggyback on what Matt was talking about with shooting 
the new uh, Avengers films, or the, or I guess they're not the final two Avengers films, but the latest Avengers films in Stockholm via DeadlineHollywood.com, tax incentives boost on location filming in L.A. to record levels. This is written by David Robb, and it says this. On-location film and TV production hit record levels in Los Angeles last year. At least in recent years, thanks in large part of the state's upgraded $330 million annual film incentives program. On-location feature film production was up 6.2% over 2015, and on-location TV production was up 4.8%, despite a weak fourth quarter. Last year, L.A. saw 39,605 on-location shooting days, defined as one crew's permission to film at one or more locations served by Film L.A., the city's film permit office during a 24-hour period. The data does not include on-the-lot filming at the major studios and networks or on certified sound stages. Now, that's an increase of nearly 10,000 shooting days from 2011, an increase of nearly 33% when the state incentives were a third of what they are now. Feature filming with 4,868 shooting days last year was up for the first time in three years, last year making 2016 the strongest year for feature production in L.A. since California introduced its first film incentive program in 2009. According to Film L.A., 15% of the production in this category was generated by film projects that qualified for the state's tax incentives. Incentivized film projects that shot last year included A Wrinkle in Time, Bright, Magic Camp, Miles, and Suburbicon. Television production, meanwhile, has seen steady gains in each of the past six years. On-location shooting of TV comedies more than doubled since 2011. TV dramas were up by more than 50% last year compared to 2011, and TV pilots were up nearly 46% last year compared to five years ago. End all quotes there. The article does go on uh, for a whole other half of the page. Again, that was Deadline.com's tax incentives boost on-location filming in L.A. to record levels. Matt, do you have anything to comment on regarding either the Your Name being the highest grossing anime film worldwide or there being no CGI Leia confirms StarWars.com or the Star Wars website or even the tax incentives boost on location filming in L.A. to record levels? Um, <clears throat> I mean, it just kind of goes back with the tax thing. It just kind of goes back to... Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess what is somebody just gonna, you know, is Phoenix just gonna one day say, Hey, we don't charge anybody anything. You don't have to pay taxes on anything other than sales tax when you buy something so that people will come and just buy. I mean, I don't know. It just seems kind of dumb. Uh, um, but I'm glad that, uh, you know, people are going back to LA, I, I, I guess. Um, the Carrie Fisher thing it's is good news. Very good. I'll tell you what. It, it was depressing the past few years. Yeah, but but, but, but New like, York was experiencing a boom. So and Georgia well, so was, was and, all these other and places. Georgia was that's what I'm saying. So I mean, it's like yeah. you know. So now all these other places are just going to start going. Oh man, we're losing all this revenue we've been counting on for the last three or four years. I guess we'll just drop the tax. It's more. It's just yeah. I don't know. <sighs> so, but it's just like a lot of people left L.A. 
or, or were forced to lo- move to LA and relocate when I, I don't know, like like the, the, like with my with I have a family member who's in the film industry and uh, as what some of you know, and he is a department head. And apparently he had to move to Georgia to work on a show because he couldn't get any work in L.A. He would have to relocate his entire family or leave his family here. Well, he ended up leaving his family here because he had to keep a house in L.A. Because in Georgia and also in Louisiana, they want L.A. people. So if you're a department head, you have to have your roots in L.A. still. So therefore, you have to get an apartment that the studio pays for in that state that you're moving to. But everything always reverts back to being from L.A. and having L.A. roots. So I guess in my mind, it just kind of makes sense for it to come back here because it sounds like that's kind of where a lot of people would rather it be. But you're all, you're still going to have... The Georgias and the Louisianas, mainly the Georgias, because I don't know. There's like a shit. There, I think Fox and uh, Pinewood has a studio there now. So there's always going to be a Georgia film community and New York film community for sure. Indeed. All right. Well, oh, and I agree on the Carrie Fisher thing. And then no, no comment on the live on the 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 anime thing. So there we go. Okay, and that brings us to the end of the news. And now brings us to. Furry Square! And this time on Three Squared, continuing in our series of worst films from a studio, this time we're going to be covering The Wonders... The, the wonders that is the craptastic of Universal. Yes. So basically Universal distributed movies or Universal produced whatever. If it came from Universal, if it's got that big old fat freaking Universal logo on it, we're counting it. Um, my picks are actually things that we have referenced before. Um, but at the same time, now I get to single them out. So yay. And these I think are literally from, uh, the best of this craptasticness to the truest actual crap of the craptasticness. Uh, from 1987, we start off with Jaws the Revenge. This is, of course, you could call it Jaws 4. This is the one with Michael Caine, uh, and a movie so bad that when asked about it, Michael Caine said, I have not seen the movie, and by all accounts, it's awful. But I have seen the house with which the money uh, I was paid for purchased, and the house is lovely. So, I mean, there you go. Basically, Jaws has gone psychic and follows people to the fucking Bahamas now. So, yeah. Uh, then we go to 1986's Howard the Duck, which is what happens when George Lucas is unrained. See? See? When, when uh, you know, you take things with like just yeah this is when george lucas starts having bad ideas now now to be fair this movie is actually uh directed by willard hyuk um and um he uh and and um but i mean lucasfilm was heavily involved in this as well so what are you gonna do i don't know but i mean this is when you got 
I, I think this is when they started calling things not bestiality, but interspecies sex. So there's that. Um, you also have duck nipples, because that's an important thing to have, I think, when you're doing an interspecies sex thing. I don't know. This movie is terrible. Stay away from it. Finally, uh, in the heyday, 1996, uh, we have Ed. It's a sports comedy film. And this is a movie where, um, this is right after Friends had come out and clearly the, the cast of Friends hadn't quite gotten themselves established yet. You know, Friends was just now starting to become a hit. And then they were like, Oh man, this is going to be awesome. We'll put something that had Ed, uh, that had Matt LeBlanc in it. And then, you know, it's going to be great. And yeah, we should have him star with a monkey in Major League Baseball action. Yeah, no, it, it's terrible. Absolute fucking trash. So, I don't know. I, I would just stay away from these movies. But again, Jaws the Revenge, Howard the Duck, and Ed are my movies. Terrible, terrible, worst of the Universal movies. What do you got there, sir? One of these movies I know I've bitched about before. So, hearing that you chose a couple that you've t- bitched about before, I don't feel as bad. Because my the, my last pick, I... I I dislike with a passion. In fact, I'm pretty I wonder if I did it as an ultimate letdown. I don't remember, but nonetheless, it is a universal movie and I have the means of bitching about it even more. But first up from <laughs> from 1980, opening the same day, opening the same weekend as The Empire Strikes Back, the film directed and written by Chuck Barris and also co-written by Robert Downey, The Gong Show Movie. Yes, a movie about The Gong Show. This is about a fictional week in the life of Chuck Barris. Of course, we all know him as the host of The Gong Show. Uh, the I guess you could call it a variety show, where you had the, the panel of celebrity judges, and various acts would come out, and... If somebody, if one of the judges does not like the act, they'll just get up and bang the gong, and there you go. It was a very successful show. This movie, not so much. Uh, it was so bad that after seeing it, George Burns said, quote, For the first time in 65 years, I wanted to get out of show business, end quote. The movie was so poorly reviewed that they quickly pulled the movie from the theaters. It's a very rough movie. It's one of those where you watch it for the first time. More likely, you're either dared to watch it, you're either drunk, or you're stoned, or you're all three. If you're all three, that is probably the best situation you could be put in to watch this movie. There's some entertaining stuff about it, and there's some what the fuck uh, is going on. Because this movie is very adult uh, uh, adult-friendly and not kid-friendly. One would think it would be more kid-friendly because it's based on the gong show. It's based on Chuck Barris. But given how Chuck Barris apparently thinks he's a part of the CIA or FBI or recruited by one of those government agencies, uh, and still to this day believes that, unless he's dead, uh, whatever, if he's dead, then he still believes in it, I guess we couldn't expect anything less from this weirdly annoying over-the-top film. Again, that was The Gong Show from 1980. Next up, from the year 1978. 
July 21st, 1978, we have the Michael Schultz-directed film Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yes, you might think, but it's a Beatles movie. It is not a Beatles movie. It is based on a Beatles song (laughs) starring Peter Frampton, the Bee Gees, Frankie Howard, Donald Pleasance, Paul Nicholas, Steve Martin, Aerosmith is in it, Alice Cooper, Earth, Wind & Fire, Billy Preston, George Burns. Uh, You have music here by the Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. This is about the fictionalized band called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it's about the trials and tribulations of being this band. Uh, According to Wikipedia here, just to give you a straightforward semi-outline of the film... The film tells the loosely constructed story of a band as they wrangle with the music industry and battle evil forces, evil forces bent on stealing their instruments and corrupting their hometown of Heartland. The film is presented in a form similar to that of a rock opera with the Beatles songs providing dialogue to carry the story, with only George Burns having spoken lines that act to clarify the plot and provide further narration. It's a, um, it's a, uh, it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a rough movie unless you're a big Beatles fan and willing to look over a wide range of badness. Leonard Malton said this about this movie, quote, this movie, quote, ranges from tolerable to embarrassing and just doesn't work. And it has for the Bee Gees acting talents. If you can't say something nice, dot, 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 end quote. And Janet Maslin from the New York Times said this, Watching it feels like playing shuffleboard at the absolute insistence of a bossy shipboard social director. When whimsy gets to be this overbearing, it simply isn't whimsy anymore. And my second pick again was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from 1978. And then finally, the creme de la crap of 2008. It is Rob Cohen's take on... The Brendan Fraser starring The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. The movie was so bad that even Rachel Weisz didn't want to reprise her role as Evie or Evelyn, the love interest, and said that role was taken over by Maria Bello for some reason. So when the first Mummy came, the first Mummy movie came out, the, I guess reboot Mummy movie came out in the late 90s, I crapped my pants. I enjoyed the movie so much. I saw it a couple times at the movie theater. I bought the DVD when it came out. I just loved it. Especially today. Even today, I still enjoy the movie. The special effects aren't nearly as bad as what one would expect now, as in it holding up or not. Even the bad special effects I can overlook because the movie is so entertaining. There's that sense of adventure that every, at least every young boy just desires. And then you had The Mummy Returns, which was a little bit of a disappointment, but still not that bad. But then many years later, you get Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. It is awful. Jet Li as a ass-kicking mummy does not work. Rob Cohen's direction, who is most known for directing Triple X and The Fast and the Furious, his direction does not work. The movie is all over the place. you got forced action. You've got forced comedic line-giving. And then you have really bad, nonsensical use of storytelling. It was just such a letdown. And even when I think about this movie now, I haven't seen it since it came out on 
uh, July 24, 2008, even since July 26th when I went to go see this movie, I get upset about it every time I think about it. Even though in on a uh, $145 million budget, the movie did gross $401 million, it did not deserve a cent of that $401.1 million. It's just a rough movie. So again, my three picks for worst universal flicks are The Gong Show from 1980, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from 1978, and then finally, the crappiest one of them all, The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor from 2008. Right on, right on. Okay, well, next week we will not be doing a bonus segment because we're going to be covering four movies next week. Yes, we're getting into the Oscar glut, folks, so you're going to have to bear with us for a few weeks. Um, lots and lots and lots of movies coming at you, but hey, these are all movies that will more than likely be nominated, and hopefully we won't have to uh, inundate you for, like, eight or nine weeks. We can just inundate you for, like, four or five. Um, so... Without further ado, I believe we are down to the movies, are we not, sir? Movie it up. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. All right, and this week's movies are Hidden Figures and Silence. 2016 version of the movie. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? How about Hidden Figures? All right, yes, Hidden Figures. 2016 American biographical drama films directed by Theodore Melfi, uh, written by Melfi and Alison Schroeder, and it is based on the nonfiction book of the same name by Margaret, I'm sorry, Margot Lee Shetterly. Uh, the film uh, stars, let's see here, Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, Janelle Monet, Kevin Costner, Kirsten Dunst, and Jim Parsons. Uh, the film basically uh, covers the lives of, uh, or the, primarily the life of Catherine G. Johnson, who is an African-American mathematician who calculated flight trajectories for Project Mercury. Um, <coughs> pardon me. It also uh, covers... The Lives of Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson, played by Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet, respectively. Um, all right, so what we have here are some women, very, very sharp, clever, um, intelligent black women who are experiencing what black people experience throughout life, but in a very, very specific white-collar government way in the early 60s as it pertains to the space program, and then, of course, how they overcame those obstacles. Now, um, this is a great movie, and uh, I, this is a very simple movie to review. It is a great movie, well-acted, um, but it, it just it doesn't bring anything new to the table. Um, it is, and, and that's, that's really kind of the sad thing, um, because I don't... I don't know what they could have done to make it better. Um, I think maybe, um, there's, a, there's a scene in there, if I remember correctly, who, let's see, let me try to pull up the cast. Uh, Chris, Kirsten Dunst, right? Uh, it's, 
Vivian, she plays Vivian, who is one of the bosses of uh, Catherine and Dorothy and stuff. Um, and she's basically trying to say at one point in the movie, she's like, look, you know, hey, I treated you um, like I would have treated anyone. And that's kind of left to be rather ambiguous um, as to whether or not she's just trying to make herself feel better or if she truly believes it or if she was correct. Um, I think with the trajectory of the movie, ah, ah, using the parlance, right? The trajectory. Um, I think you're left to divine that, in fact, while she might believe that statement, um, it would not be, um, it would be very easy to dismiss as a true statement. And I think that's where a movie like this in this day and age needs to go. I think that it really needs to highlight the subtlety with which racism was instituted. Um, not the in-your-face things. It's, and, and I don't mean that to, to be something that is designed to take away from the struggles for civil rights. It's just that, in point of fact, it has been done. I don't want to say to death, but it has been done very nearly overly so to the point where it's losing its gravitas. And so we get movies like this where they're very well acted and very well done, but just basically by the numbers, you know, group of people who are um, a minority for some reason, uh, adversity that is unfair and undeserved, overcome adversity, people appreciate them for who they are, right? What I think is something that would be much more well-received, and I think probably something that is needed, is something where you see the insidious nature of, um, I don't like the term microaggression, because I think that's, I, I, I think that's too far down that road. But where you do see the subtleties in racism, where it makes you question, hang on, what is my perception of that? I think that's where uh, where stories like this need to start going. Because as it stands, this is just a four-star movie. It's a really good movie. I think you should see it. Well-performed, well-acted, but simply by the numbers. What do you got there, Tim? I actually don't have too much to add to what you just said. I, I agree. I do think it's a little bit by the numbers when it comes to some of the points that the movie was trying to make and bring up. And I, I just kind of felt like that parts of the movie, not many of the parts, but whenever they were trying to nail the point, you know, nail those points that they were trying to make, it felt like that whenever they were just about to do it, the moments before were the setup for that point that they were trying to make. And I guess it says something that it doesn't happen too often, the points. But the thing is, is that like the point, the points that they're trying to make I don't know if I'm, that's kind of the right thing to say, but uh, about race, racial tensions, and uh, especially in the workplace, um, these points that they are trying to make should happen organically and should be something that doesn't have to be super blatant, I should say. Because when you have somebody making, pointing this stuff out and they give like these big speeches, it doesn't come across as genuine, forced. For example, 
Uh, one character that I think that that I think does this quite often in the movie, and she's a very fine actor. Turns out she's actually I think like a jazz performer or a musician or something like that, a singer. Uh, Janelle Monet, she plays Mary Jackson. She is like the I am woman. Hear me roar! I will not bow down to any white man. I will not bow down to any oppressive black man either. Um, she is just like your all around feminist, but. Every once in a while in the movie, and there are maybe like four instances in the film where she says something, where she is nailing that point, and it just feels like every time she does that, she's just waiting to say it, and she's waiting to bring those points up. And I don't know if I'm really... Am I making sense, Matt, at all? Like, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say it. Oh, honestly... I had to uh, look at something on another tab, and I drifted out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. Well, okay. Well, just real quick. Like, what I was, I was talking about, uh, Janelle Monet's character, Mary Jackson, out of the three, she is, like, the one that is making these points. And, and whenever she is going to make one of these points, which I'm not sure if that's really the right thing to say. I'm kind of struggling with the right word. But within those points, as she's about to say them, it feels like all of her motivation and character and body language and all that stuff is just preparing to say those lines to really drive these points home. So, oh yeah, because her character is the most outspoken. So she's, I see what you're saying. So basically what you're saying is instead of, um, it seems like instead of her character just being the... um, more organic and more like a natural leader it seems like the the writing is is simply using her um to be like the moral memo board right she's the one who comes up and says hey this is what's right and this is yeah exactly yeah yeah like she is like and i'm not saying that it's just about like the racing because i mean she's like the feminist she is the uber feminist of the three three ladies and that's great and everything but it just felt like to me that is why her character was there. And I know she's based, I'm sure she, I don't know if, if, if that's how the uh, real Mary Jackson, if she was like that or not, but the actress Janelle Monet, how she played the character, she played her character very stoic in the face. There wasn't really much reacting going on other than her normal reaction of being like the, the kind, of, kind of being snarky, I suppose. And that, I mean, that was really the only character that bothered me when it came to stuff like that. I thought Octavia Spencer did a good job, though I think she, at least to me, she played the character a little too sheepish until she did explode in that one scene um, where she does talk about not, uh, where she does kind of uh, talk about like being at the bathroom and having to walk across the campus and whatnot. She all of a sudden just explodes. And you kind of get the sense, like up until that point, like, you know, she has to put up with stuff, but she is still like this sheepish not i don't want to say sheepish but she's she's a strong woman and everything but she can still see that she is like this more reserved lady until she does explode and there just has to be that fire that that gets lit there because whenever they do talk about uh the racial tensions in america the three of these women they kind of joke about it you know they joke about sitting in the back of the bus and all that stuff and when you're joking about it 
There has to be that moment in the film, in the story, that just lights that fire so that fire can just build up and burn within her until she does have to walk across campus to go to the colored bathrooms in the rain and then get bitched at by her boss who doesn't understand what she's having to go through or what she's being put through by her uh, her uh, her comrades, you know, not her comrades, but her peers. And then that's what makes her explode. And I just wanted that fire. And honestly, I think that's what the movie lacked in general. But it is still a very good movie. And I do give it a 3.75 out of 5. I'm This is another one, like, like Fences. I'm looking forward to watching it again and possibly, you know, rating it higher. But even a 3.75 is a really good score. So I highly... I, I hope everybody... If this time period interests you, equally importantly, if you are interested in the space race that does not involve Apollo 13 or or Neil Armstrong, then this is another movie for you because just the backstory of it is just absolutely fascinating. And the movie as a whole is incredibly entertaining. So you know what? Actually, I'm going to give it a four out of five. I think it it is very good and deserves to be seen. And it is very entertaining despite its flaws. Fair enough. All right. Well, then that leaves us with Silence, the 2016 version of the movie. Um, not related to the other one by plot, just name. Uh, so, so we got a 2016 epic historical drama. It's directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Jay Cox and Scorsese. It's based upon a 1966 novel of the same name by Shusaku Endo, uh, or Endo, rather. I apologize. Um, this is basically uh, telling the story of two 17th century Jesuit priests who go to Japan, um, and this uh, and basically they are trying to figure out what actually happened to one of their fellow priests who um, became an apostate. Right? Is that the uh, yeah apostate? Basically, renounced Christ um, in Japan in the 17th century. Now, one thing that is very important to note is that this movie takes place uh, after what was known as the Shim- uh, Shimabara Rebellion, which happened uh, in 1637 and 1638. Now, at the time, Christianity was already uh, deemed illegal, but it wasn't really enforced all that much. But because of the ruling emperor who ended up winning and after they suppressed the rebellion, um, felt that the, the Catholic Church had played a part in the rebellion and stoking it and, and, you know, making it strong. Uh, they not only kicked everybody out who they felt was part of uh, the Catholic Church and Christianity in general, uh, they literally persecuted Christians uh, to death. So this kind of gives you the context of why these guys are like, hold on now, our boy would never do that. And they go off to Japan to figure out what happened. And then, of course, they see for themselves firsthand what exactly happens to Christians in Japan in this time period. And the movie then focuses on what exactly it means to have faith and keep your faith no matter the cost. And that's all I want to say about the movie. So I will say that the movie, this is uh, Martin Scorsese on point as usual. Uh, the performances are really good. I'm actually getting pretty impressed uh, with Andrew Garfield's ability to come up with 
um, accents. Um, you know, I appreciate that he's doing that. And we've also got, um, you know, Emo Darth is in this movie as well. And he does, he does a remarkable job. I, I'm actually, it's, it's really refreshing to see Adam Driver in these other films because, you know, he's going to be so heavily linked to Star Wars for the rest of his life that it's nice to see that he really does have some acting chops. Um, the, this, there's only going to be one, one big drawback to this movie. Uh, I, I find this movie to be amazing. It's great, but, I haven't said this about a Martin Scorsese movie since Hugo. Uh, this movie is too long. I, I understand why it was as long as it was. I get what they were trying to do. I get that, you know, Scorsese has a story to tell in a specific way that he likes to tell it. But I truly, truly feel that this movie, um, that clocks in at about two hours and 40 minutes was about 30 minutes too long. Um, and it's not in any one section, which makes it worse. So I gotta give this one, uh, oh, okay. I have 4.5 written down, but I'm thinking it might be 4.25. Um, so I'm trying to, you know, you know what? It's early in the year. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to it. I'm going to, you know what? We're going to, we're, we're going to be optimistic here. And give it longevity. So 4.5 out of 5, but the movie is too long. Um, outside of that, still great performances. This is still a great Scorsese flick. What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. I'm not going to lie, but I had to go to the cast list and look up the actor name Emo Darth. <laughs> because I didn't... <laughs> I, I, I thought there was somebody... It was Adam yeah, Driver? Yeah, I thought there was a guy named Emo Darth <laughs> until I realized, oh, wait. Gotcha. <laughs> nice. Um, Ryan, I, this is a 4.5 out of 5 movie for me. It's one that you have to be awake to see it. Um, you definitely have to be awake because I'm not going to lie, I got pretty sleepy there in the middle and I couldn't tell if it was the movie's fault or if it was just me not getting enough sleep this past weekend. But it's a very good movie from start to finish. I guess me getting a little sleepy and others getting a little sleepy is attested to us not being used to seeing movies like this at the movie theater. We're used to seeing movies like Captain America Civil War that's two hours and 20 minutes long, but it's all flashy and camera movement and explosions and action and gunfights and chases. In this movie has very little score to it and it moves very slow and normally movies like this are are faulty but given what this movie is about it's about patience it's about silence it's about what these padres are going through and what they're having to give up for their faith or go through for their faith it's kind of like i'm in some way getting a sense of of the experience like i'm not saying that you're experiencing exactly what they're going through but by the end of the movie i would be surprised if if anything you're not in that mindset of deep thought and and asking questions uh whether about the movie or anything like that i'm not a religious person and this movie did not make me think otherwise i just very much appreciated what this movie had to say what martin scorsese had to say even though I thought the very end of the movie, 
was a little was kind of I don't want to necessarily say it was a cop out, but it just was a little like uh you oh, and that's all I'm gonna say. Like I I'd give this movie more, but it ended with a oh. I would give this movie less, but I understood what Martin Scorsese was trying to convey through this film, or with this film, and I was right there along with him. Uh, So 4.5 out of 5 for me, as well, silence. Very good. All right. Well, then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Jackie, Patriot's Day, Moonlight, and Split. So, again, big movie week next week, so no bonus segment. And I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio as well as track us down on the old soundcloud so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to taraji p henson i get to say this humans have a light side and a dark side and it's up to us to choose which way we're going to live our lives even if you start out on the dark side it doesn't mean you have to continue your journey that way you always have time to turn it around take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>